Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And the Oscar goes to... Oh, thank you so much. This might be the one time I'm speaking. This is not a joke. Moonlight is one best picture. Could you double check the envelope? And I can't deny the fact that you like me. Thank you, life. Thank you, love. You guys are just standing up because you feel bad that I fell, and that's really embarrassing, but thank you. This is nuts. It's a tie. I'm the king of the world. And the Oscar goes and to... And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar to... goes to... My only object is Welcome to the Next Best Picture Podcast. And the Oscar goes to everything, everywhere. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 367 of the Next Best Picture Podcast. I am your host, Matt Neglia, and the time of recording is 11.05 a.m. on November 5th. 2023 daylight savings we gained an extra hour of sleep so we're all energized we're all ready to go we're here to talk about award season before the shit hits the fan with the precursors over the next couple of days and weeks and never-ending months sometimes it feels like through award season uh it's the calm before the storm in many ways we got some trailers to talk about we'll go over the polls here to join me this week to talk about all these things i've got cody derricks hiya giovanni lago Hello, everyone. And Josh Parham. Hello, hello. So as I started off saying here, uh, it feels like we're in a bit of a calm period now, post-fall film festivals, but we're getting some precursors here and there that are giving us a bit of an entry point into some exciting races. Uh, This past week, we got nominations for the British Independent Film Awards, the Hollywood Music and Media Awards, and these are like... You know, like I said, preliminary things that you could take a look at and just see where things are heading a little bit just in terms of what's gaining some buzz. I would always say take these with like a grain of salt. You know, next week we're going to have the European Film Award nomination, Cinema Eye Honors nominations, Critics' Choice Documentary Award winners will be next week as well. So there's definitely a lot of stuff to look forward to. The real, real beginning of all of this, though, is going to take place towards the end of the month when we get the Gotham Award winners. New York Film Critics Circle winners, and then December, it's just 
off to the races, <laughs> as it is every single year where every regional critics group will announce their winners, will start to formulate a consensus around some of these categories, because right now it still feels like it's open season. So that's what a lot of our conversation is going to be about today is, um, you know, at the end of the show, we usually have a, hey, ask us anything from the MVP film community. Well, today I'm going to flip the table a little bit on my three co-hosts here, and I'm going to ask them questions that are on my mind <laughs> as we head into this very, very fun part of the season. But before we get into any of that, what did everyone watch this week? Starting off first with Cody Derricks. All right. So I've seen a few new movies this week. You know, now that Halloween is over and I can hop off the spooky train temporarily, even though it's always chugging along in my heart, I can really get going in Oscar season, as I'm sure a lot of our listeners are right now. Um, but I did watch a new scary movie on Halloween, Hell House LLC Origins, colon, The Carmichael Manor, which is a bad title <laughs> for a movie I had a lot of fun watching. It's um, the fourth movie in the Hell House LLC franchise. It is a prequel to the first film, and it is spooky. You know, the first film is one of my favorite modern, low-budget horror films. It's, you know, not an amazing film in terms of storytelling or performances or filmmaking, but it is scary. It really knows how to build dread and execute the tension that we're, you know, is building inside of us and build really good jump scares, and this one is no exception. It's definitely this, probably the scariest of the series so far. So anybody looking for a good, you know, easy scare, this is definitely something I'd recommend. I've already shown it to two different groups of friends. In terms of Oscar movies, I got to check out The Holdovers yesterday, which I'm mm. so happy I saw. And I'm specifically so happy I got to see here at the Music Box Theater in Chicago on 35 millimeter. And this isn't necessarily the type of movie you might think you need to go to a theater to see on film if that's available to you. You know, usually that's something that you see with Christopher Nolan, these big movies, these expansive cinematic landscapes and all sorts of things like that. This is a much more contained movie, obviously, really only focusing on three people for most of the runtime. But I'm really glad I did see it in film. You know, this whole movie, including the opening logos and the look of it and the music, is such a throwback to the time period it's set in, 1970, and the films of the era, specifically the films of, you know, Hal Ashby, for example. Those kinds of mid-budget, grounded adult dramedies that used to be like the bedrock of cinema, the tentpoles, if you will, before, you know, Jaws came along and ruined everything. And seeing it on 35mm really sells the, that feeling this is going for. You know, this is a very <laughs> comforting movie, a, a cozy, warm movie, which isn't to say that it's all, you know, hugs and giggles and smiles. There's definitely a prickly edge to this. Um, you can feel it as kind of a look at an older generation looking back upon their lost dreams and looking at a younger generation with not resentment, but with almost envy, even if they don't know that themselves. And I thought this is probably Alexander Payne's best movie in maybe since Sideways. It's really something special. I thought all three actors were fantastic. Um, Giamatti, you know, this is kind of the ideal Giamatti performance. It's been 20 years since Sideways, which I think for a lot of us was the 
quintessential Paul Giamatti type. And now this seems like uh, building upon that foundation for a new type for him in this era of his career. And, you know, I do hope he can get nominated for it. It's a it's a tough race of Best Actor. It's more crowded than it's been in a long, long time, which is good. Um, but I'm hoping there can be room for him. And this doesn't end up like, you know, his last collaboration with Alexander Payne uh, and end up with a snub. Uh, and finally, I got to see Joyride, which was something I missed in theaters when it was playing a few months ago. And I liked this movie. I thought it was funny. I think maybe it got bolstered a bit by the fact that us who are really into film are so starved for genuine out and out comedies that aren't like action comedies or dramedies, just full on movies intended to make you laugh first and foremost. And this is definitely that. But I don't think it's anything you know, essential in terms of its story or filmmaking. The acting is pretty great. The writing is mostly good, but there was some creaky jokes and bits that went on way too long and some specific kind of surreal gross out stuff that is not really my taste, which isn't to say it's done poorly, just not for me, but I am happy this movie exists for all it represents. And as a look into what we can do with comedy, even in the year 2023. Yeah, comedy and horror this year specifically, I feel like the industry is really trying to recalibrate and find out what works best in a theater versus streaming. And uh, it, it does feel like a very odd time for both genres, in my opinion. But I, I agree, Cody. Um, I do think that we are starved for good R-rated uh, theater comedies. So, all right. Giovanni Lago, on to you, sir. Well, I caught up with a bunch of stuff this past week. Um, I watched Sly, which is the Netflix documentary about Sylvester Stallone. And at times, it was entertaining. I think it's very fun to see Stallone passionately uh, go back in time and talk about uh, how certain films came to be, especially um, the whole section about Copland is really good and how he kept goading uh, De Niro to get into the, you know, the the infamous, hey, you blew it line, which is, <laughs> I loved it. That personally was like the highlight for me or even like Quentin Tarantino's in it and like some of the interviews and he's talking about the Lords of Flatbush and those moments are great. And of course he is. <laughs> yeah, he is. And he goes off. <laughs> And I had no idea, so when I watched it, it was just a jump scare. I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> you're here. Tarantino, like, you know, coming onto the screen with all the cocaine-fueled energy and speaking in a million miles an hour will be a jump scare for anyone, I yes. feel like. <laughs> yes. Um, unfortunately, those were really the only highlights of it. I felt – he talks a lot about, you know, his father and relationship with his father, but it never goes really in-depth with it. And it was such an interesting and heartbreaking dynamic, I wish – was focused on more and then it's just wrapped up so nicely towards the end and I didn't think it really comes at all together especially when he also talks about his self as a father and how that affected him and instead it kind of just feels like those GQ videos where it's just like an actor or a director breaking down the movies they've done for like an hour and a half and it's just okay I I didn't really need this I would have preferred if you went for the more um emotional route um, and speaking of emotional, another movie I saw is Society of the Snow, which is fantastic. I really enjoyed it. Probably some of the most visceral depiction of like an airplane crash I've ever seen in like any form of media. And it's terrifying. Yeah. That and Ferrari are just like the, the one and two of just visceral crashes in film this year. Like the sound work 
and society snow is some of the best i've heard of all year um the way like the rattling of the plane the winds of um the andes it's so well done i think the ensemble's really great you know jay bayona you know picking uh native actors from that region really helps sell um the authenticity of it uh it does go a bit too long i i think especially towards the second act it, it becomes a little bloated but other than that i i thought it was great i i told matt i had the weird comparison i was like it's like jay bayona made like a uh his take on like a top tier ron howard movie like i just got <laughs> those vibes I, it's not an insult like it's like in the most compliment of way like it's very good <laughs> Yeah, it's like, you know, it's got that scale of production mm-hmm. that one would see, like, in a Ron Howard film. It's not the most, how would I say, like, art housey depiction of this event. Uh, no. It's definitely built, I think, for a mass audience to consume. But it's also, you know, it doesn't pull punches. And Mm-mm, it definitely no. has a visceral element to it that I, I, I found to be quite overwhelming like I staggered out of the theater when it was over, pretty overcome by emotion, and I, I was really, really feeling uh, the cathartic of just what was accomplished by by these survivors, honestly, and not just through them, but also too like the um, the casualties and the victims of of this terrible tragedy, and how I don't want to reveal too much, but there's a lot of beauty in stuff that you might that one might think on the surface would be horrible and grotesque but jay bayona really found a way to depict it in such a tasteful way that mm-hmm. i was like very very moved by it yes and also giacchino's score is really good yeah i'm i'm keeping an eye out for him in the score race now at this point this year because that's some really really excellent work in that movie it is uh another film i saw that was pretty bad i saw uh five nights at freddy's which funny enough you know my friends told they went to a theater to see it back uh in florida and they were telling me their whole theater crowded with like younger people and they're like it was like end game for them like when steve got like Captain America, uh, Captain America got Thor's hammer. They were just freaking out, loving it. And they were all just sitting there like, what is happening? Like, I do not understand this. I never played this game. I don't understand the lore. It's terrible, like, in every way. The I will give it credit, though. The prosthetic or, like, the, the practical suits for the creatures, whatever they're called. I forgot. I don't even. The monsters. Um, They look cool. Besides that, I, I I can't really recommend it at all. It just fails in every way. Um, what what would, what would be the equivalent of uh, using the phrase "beautiful gowns, beautiful gowns" for a movie like this? <laughs> beautiful animatronics. Yeah. Beautiful animatronics. Beautiful animatronics. <laughs> yeah, they're they're definitely the best part of the movie. Thank you, Jim Henson Creature Shop. Everything else yes. about the movie is just nothing. Although Rough. you know, what do we know? It's making a ton of money. I cannot believe how much money that movie made. I was in the shock when I really? saw those numbers. That, that surprises you? I mean, I that guess I'm the one who has familiarity with this property. Like this thing is so popular. Like, yeah. I didn't know it was that popular. I knew it was popular, but not seventy-five million dollars popular. <laughs> Have you seventy-five million dollars when you can watch it at home? Are... <laughs> yeah. That was the other thing, too. It was available on Peacock same day. Yeah, that's how yeah. I watched it. <laughs> I think that's a good thing, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so to bounce that back, a better movie I saw. I, uh, I had my first um, Aki Kurismaki film. I saw Fallen Leaves. Nice. Which is delightful. Look, oh, a brisk so 80-something minute film. I love rom-coms. 
the dry humor of it is so good, and I was just dialed in immediately. Every supporting actor or actress in that film, just an oddball uh, murderer's row of characters that, like, come in and have the funniest light readings. I know um, the Jalapa's best friend, I- I'm blanking on um, the actor's name, amazing. He's like, I got a, I got a great voice. That's what they're telling me. I got a great voice. I need the agent hasn't contacted me. It's so good. I just, I love it. I love the the color grading. I love the way um, Aki Kurosaki uses the production design to really convey what these characters are experiencing. I'm not going to say in detail. There is a scene where there's a date and they go to the theater and the movie that plays I was not expecting <laughs> at all. It was probably one of my favorite moments of a movie this year. I thought it was adorable. It's a very sweet film. Uh, you should go see it if you get the chance. Uh, yesterday, I watched two movies, um, which weirdly enough pair well together, especially the commentary, um, since it was, I want to say, the 25th anniversary, and now it's on Criterion. I watched Belly. Which is, you know, the oh yeah, the Hype Williams uh film that starred DMX and Nas and and in New York and these two uh, up and coming gangsters are trying to make their their way um in the crime world and it's like got Method Man and it's just visually a feast and it, it's crazy because like the production the intro of the movie you watch like maybe three minutes apparently costed more than half of the budget just to do that opening and it's just amazing um it's a bit messy i will say but in that messiness um there's a very singular vision from hype williams that you can see um especially because most of the people aren't really actors at all they're either rappers or people from the music industry it's very entertaining i i think it's kind of a shame that hype williams was never able to really make another film like that especially and just focus on music and i think that you know the reevaluation of belly all these years later have shown that how influential in these types of films and how like visually singular um hype williams vision is it's really good also dmx is actually pretty good in it and also cool jackets if your main protagonist wears great jackets i'm usually in so very good you can watch it in criterion and the last film I watched last night, which balances out with everything about Belly, is American Fiction. Cord Jefferson's uh, directorial debut, you know, it's got a lot of hype, especially um, contrary to Belly, which is, you know, a film that I wouldn't say glorizes, but, you know, it talks about gangsters and portrays, you know, black people in a certain way. And, you know, you come to watch American Fiction and Jeffrey Wright is an author and he's tired of black stories being relegated to either single parents or drug addicts or you know criminals and the movie is fantastic i was laughing so hard i thought i was being obnoxious by how much i was laughing i mostly every joke hits um i did not know tracy ellis ross was in it so every time like i didn't know sterling king brown was in it i didn't i didn't know much going into it besides (laughs) just jeffrey wright so like watching it i was just like oh my god you're here oh my god you're here and everyone's great and i i think jeffrey wright of course you know i was i was thinking about um when was the last time jeffrey wright had a leading role and and cord jefferson last night during the q a he was like yeah it's been like 30 years since like basquiat that like jeffrey wright's had the moment to like be the number one guy you know it's usually uh he's commissioner gordon or he's this guy on the side and he's been a great uh character actor you know but seeing uh jeffrey wright get a moment to shine he's so funny and and so like 
there's an anger built inside, but like it's heartwarming and, and charming. Like he's not just a complete asshole. Like he wins you in and then you're like, oh, you're kind of a dick. But like you you shut yourself out and if you just let yourself in, people will like you. But he's so good and Sterling K. Brown is great. Um I do think by the end there's a few threads uh I wish were a bit wrapped up in a more concise way. But by the end, I, I, the whole time I was just having a ball. And also John Ortiz is so good in that movie. Oh, his comic timing is perfect. Perfect. It's so good. One of the best films I've seen of the year. Uh, also too, I will not stand for this whole, the dark erasure for Jeffrey Wright leading performances. FYI. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I agree. He really hasn't had like his moment to really, really shine to the degree that American fiction allows him to. And yeah, as we've uh, discussed a couple of times now on this show already, that film is really starting to climb up in the award season race, and we'll see how far it continues to go. But um, yeah, great stuff all around. Josh Parm, what about you? Uh, well, first, before I mention the new stuff, I have to just mark that um, saw Oppenheimer for an eighth time. Whew. <laughs> My lord. Our Which strongest mean- soldier. Uh, which actually now means that I can officially say I have spent 24 hours in a theater watching Oppenheimer. So wow, let's go. <laughs> what was the uh, what was the occasion? They brought it back in IMAX, and I found one that I could get to. Not close, unfortunately, but uh, I needed to see it in IMAX one more time. Ah, such a great yeah, movie. I, I don't blame you for that at all. Yeah. So uh, yeah, <laughs> I really liked to have crossed that off. Um, I also saw the holdovers though. Not quite as enthusiastic of it, I have to say. I Aww. I did not really Thank like you. it all that much. Uh, I thought it was fine. Like, I totally get that it is, like, very endearing of a story, but it just never really moved me all that much. And even Giamatti, who I, I love, but I even felt like this one was kind of just basically his sideways performance and not that much different in terms of, like, the tone that I find – a lot of Alexander Payne movies have. I I didn't hate it. I just thought it was okay. And after all the hype, I was a little bit underwhelmed. I have to say Randolph was great. She was my favorite part, but everything else, I just thought it was fine. I didn't love it. I just thought it was okay. Dominic Sessa, no, no shout out. Oh, he was fine. He was good. Like, Oof. I don't think the movie is bad. I just didn't think it was all that engaging of a narrative for me. I know I am in the minority opinion. It feels like, but it, it was just okay. I wasn't won over by it. I don't know, much. Josh. Now you, Giovanni, and Dan yeah. Baer all kind of have very similar feelings here. I wonder if this is something that's going to continue the more it gets widely seen. Maybe, maybe so. Like like I said, it, I don't think it's a terrible movie, but I just felt like that the story itself kind of just was always on the surface, and it was on the verge of saying something more profound about these characters, but it just never really got there for me, and I felt very distant with it and all the things I wanted to love about it just never got to that point. So I wanted to really like it, but unfortunately it just didn't really work for me all that much. Uh, and I can also say the same thing to another movie, which was fingernails. Hmm. I was, was also pretty let down by this movie. This was another one that I sort of felt like had a lot of ideas that it really wanted to comment on that had a profound nature to it, but it never really said anything that innovative i thought about the nature of love and relationships and it played with a kind of interesting premise but i felt like that's all that it really had was that premise and 
the dynamic between those characters just never really felt all that compelling to me. And I think it has good performances and I like all those actors in it. And it has this sort of nice visual aesthetic, especially with the cinematography. But I did not find the story like engrossed me really at all. So that was another one that I I don't think was terrible, but did not really have a great impact on me either. Bummer. Yeah. But on better front, I did see Anatomy of a Fall. I did catch oh. up with that one. And? Very, very good. Yes, I, yeah. I very much enjoyed it. It's pretty riveting all the way through. I think Sandra Hewler is absolutely fantastic. It really is a great performance and was really captivated all throughout. The one thing I will say about that movie is that I do think that the writing is – not necessarily clunky. I, I wouldn't say that's the right word, but it, it does this thing where it really wants to sell how complicated this situation is and especially this relationship that they're dissecting. And you get multiple moments where they say like, oh, no, you can't like just analyze this one moment because it's out of context and a relationship is built on more than just this one particular thing that happened. And like I get that. But then, like, there will be scenes where characters will then just explain all the context. And it's like, well, that, that sort of, to me, kind of ruined the overall theme. Like, there's that that flashback that you get between um, her and her husband. And it's a really well-done scene, but it, it did kind of feel like their conversation just basically outlined every single thing that the movie was talking about. And I found that to be a little... It's, not really gracefully delivered in terms of the theme. And I think the movie has some moments like that that kind of pulled me out. But I still liked it very much overall. And um, The Kid, too, like one of the best child performances I've seen this year. And honestly, I think should be in the supporting actor conversation because he is fantastic. So it's a really, really good movie. Maybe I don't love it quite so much, but still, like if you could catch it, you should because it's very, very well done. I think everyone in the supporting cast in that movie is pretty phenomenal from the hot lawyer to the dipshit lawyer to yeah. the dog, everybody. The dog. Oh, yes. A great performance from the dog. <laughs> he should be in the supporting actor conversation. Yeah. Palm dog. Do uh, palm dog winner. There we go. I got that out right. <laughs> totally deserved. Absolutely. I do think, though, Josh, that part of the reason why that movie is succeeding on a broader level outside of just even the Art House International community is because of the way that that story is told, uh, which I know for you is not necessarily your preference a lot of the time. But I, a part of me believes that that is why it's working for more people than usual. You know what I mean? Yeah, I could see that. That actually does make sense when I'm watching something that's like, hmm, this is a little broad for my taste. And usually yeah. that means it's very popular. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that, that makes sense. And I still like the movie very much, for sure. You know, it's just maybe not one of my absolute favorites of the year, but I was still – as I said, very riveted by it and would easily recommend it because it's still a very good movie. Absolutely. I, I just wanted to very, very quickly mention, because uh, I didn't talk about like the wrap-up of my Chicago Film Festival. I'm not going to do all of that, but I, there were just one or two things that I wanted to just very quickly mention because they're going to rank very highly on my end of your list. Sure. One of them is Zone of Interest. Oh, God, yeah. Fantastic movie. My God, just shook me to my core. Like, I... I was watching that movie just sort of in awe of what was happening in front of me. And I think Glazer does an amazing, amazing job with that material. I 
oh, it, I mean, it's, it's hard to say I recommend the movie because it's a very tough watch, but it was one of the most emotionally effective movies that I had seen this year. And I think the direction of that film is incredible. So I, I really do think that is like one of the best cinematic achievements that, that we have seen. I think other than Nolan with Oppenheimer, I think it might be the cinematic achievement of the year, quite honestly. And yep. I can't see a world where he misses a, a director nomination for this film. I just can't, I cannot see it happening because it's such a singular vision and in such a way that I've never seen before with any other film within its subgenre that it, it just screams to me, this is getting in for director. This is probably winning international feature. It's going to be one of the most acclaimed movies of the year, probably going to do extremely well with the precursors, especially the highbrow ones. I, I could see it getting in the picture. And then it's like at that point, what else is on the table? Cinematography, sound, you know, it's like this movie's the real deal and has been the real deal now since, since its world premiere at Cannes. Absolutely. I, I think this is a movie very much is tailored to get nominated for Best Director. Like, I really do think that he is very solidly in, in my opinion. I, I, it's it's so great. And I agree that it between him and Nolan, I actually do go back and forth as to which direction I prefer this year because it's it's such an achievement. Um, and then the last thing that I do want to mention is another movie that I really, really loved and that is All of Us Strangers. Yes, Josh. Very predictable. I was going to love that movie. Obviously, it's an Andrew Haig movie. So it's, you know, I'm, I'm very much a fan of his work. But, oh, my God, like I I am one of those people that that cried in multiple points of this film. And it's yet another Andrew Haig movie that does such great character work. I think Andrew Scott is also delivering a fantastic performance. Claire Foy is also just so heartbreaking and yeah, the, the story about how you are kind of dealing with the past trauma and the relationship that you want to have with your parents and and kind of navigating through all that, you know, kind of gets tangled up with your own insecurities as you get older, too. Like, I – brilliant. I, I absolutely loved it. This will very much be on my top ten. I, I think it's one of the best movies of the year. And, yes, it's so, so incredible. I'm going to see it again at some point because I still need to wrap my mind around the ending. I've seen it twice now, and all three times I disagree with the direction that the ending goes in. Um, not the final shot of the movie, which I think is absolutely stunning and beautiful, but I don't want to reveal too much. But like the way the movie goes is something that like from a messaging standpoint that still hasn't worked for me yet. But I love the score especially. I think the cinematography is amazing. Oh, it's uh, Andrew Haggs' best – uh, I think, directed film yet in terms of just the technical elements. And Andrew Scott is so, so remarkable in this. We were talking before about Jeffrey Wright not really being given the opportunity to shine. Uh, Andrew Scott's in a very similar way within the f feature film world. And here it's like, look at what this guy can do. Cast him in more things, please. <laughs> oh, it's such an incredible performance. Another one that is like rather internalized, but it can have some big moments. But even those big moments feel rooted very authentically within that character. And uh, yeah, I agree. He's another one who's been given great work consistently, but hasn't really had too many lead performances, but this is a great showcase. And like everybody in the cast is fantastic too. Oh, I just, I love this movie so much. Okay. I'm going to keep mine very, very brief here. Um, I rewatched American fiction and maestro at AFI last week on Sunday and surprise, surprise, uh, both of them held up for me. Maestro especially was something that I was like, you know, analyzing a little bit more on that second viewing after the first overwhelming watch of it all. 
And I just walked away from it feeling the same way I did the first time, which is I still maintain I think both Cooper and Mulligan are both winning for this. I really, really do. And uh, Giovanni, in case you're wondering, because I know you've seen it already too, yes, the audience did clap at the end of that scene. It's every time. Every time. So... I just can't see a world and like the sentiment was also the same of people walking out of the theater, uh, people I was talking to. Everybody felt, listen, like love Killian Murphy, love everyone else in that best actor category. There, there's just no way that they're going to turn him down for this. They're, like, There's just no way. It, it, it's like he tapped into the ultimate cheat code to win best actor this year, <laughs> which is what we have been saying from the beginning. Exactly. <laughs> right. I Even mean, like we saw it the is... movie. <laughs> It is so typical for this category. You know, he's wearing prosthetics, playing a real person. He's going outside of what he may have done before. But I haven't seen the movie yet, but I'm still excited to see this performance just because he has not let me down yet. And I was, you know, such a fan of his work on Star is Born. And I think we all agree should have won for that. So I'm more than happy for this to be his, you know, not makeup Oscar, but well-earned Oscar. And there's it's such different work that a star is born to for his direction of the movie. Mm-hmm. It's way more art housey <laughs> than I think. Like every time I see someone say this is Oscar bait, this is Oscar bait. Okay, like fine. See the movie, then come back to me and tell me if you think the way that he directed this movie is typical Oscar bait because it does not play out the same way that other biopic performances have. Uh, like you know, I'm thinking of. Things from ranging from Bohemian Rhapsody to uh, The Fury of Everything and Judy and, you know, the list goes on and on and on. This is a way more auteur-driven film that I think people are giving it credit for. And that second trailer that they released for it, I think, should hopefully give people a different perspective on it because, my God, what a great trailer that was. <laughs> um American Fiction, I, I really, really enjoy this movie. I'm actually seeing it for a third time th- tonight, actually. <laughs> like, I just, I really, really enjoy the vibe of this movie uh, quite a bit. And Core Jefferson has just become, like, one of my favorite people on the campaign trail this year. And he's going to be there tonight. So uh, I was happy to watch it a second time. Played, like, Gangbusters. And the audience absolutely loved it. Um, I'm going again tonight because I just kind of love being swept up in that euphoric audience reaction for it. What does that say about its best picture chances, though? Mm, well, we'll maybe talk about that a little bit later. Um, it was Halloween, so I decided to finally watch When Evil Lurks. And fuck me, that movie went hard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I still need to see this movie. Oh, my God. I, I, I don't know what I was expecting. I had heard some rumblings that the movie was intense, but I did not think it was going to go like that. That was so extraordinarily bleak shocking uh, there's one particular jump scare involving a dog in this movie that i jumped so hard i i nearly fell out of my uh, seat and uh, like i i was whew, my heart was racing um i think that ezekiel rodriguez gives like this incredible performance in this movie too that's so haunting um i'm so glad i got to watch it uh, on halloween with friends because i just think that enhanced my viewing experience all the more uh, I for for my money, it's my it's probably my favorite horror movie I've seen this year by far. Ugh. After when evil lurks, I I needed a uh, I needed something to calm me down because my nerves were so rattled. So I watched the blackening, <laughs> and that was that was also a lot of fun to watch with friends. And we had a great time on Halloween night. I laughed really really hard at so many points in that film. It's not great, but as a way of kind of sending up genre tropes of black people in horror movies, I had a really really fun time with it. It was, you know. Nothing special, but it was it was good. It, it was it was a fun time. 
And then, uh, like I said, uh, the captain, which I know, Josh, you saw this over at Venice. Good. Good. I, I wasn't blown away by it until uh, the ending. The ending, I thought, was really, really fantastic. And the performance from uh, Seydoux Sar uh, was really, really powerful, quite tremendous. But as far as, like, depicting the immigrant experience, I didn't feel like it actually brought anything new to the table. It was pretty conventional by my taste, but still solid all around. Like, there's nothing necessarily, like, bad or wrong with it. It just wasn't... Um, it just didn't. It just didn't have that unique uh, element to it that kind of made it stand out above other films. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I think my review of it, like I gave it a six out of ten. Like it's, it's fine. I didn't think it was a bad movie, and overall, I was like rather into it. I agree that that central performance is like so good. Like he's really, really pretty excellent in that role. But I do think that the movie itself, yeah, it it is rather conventional it doesn't really go in places that are unexpected or those arcs for those characters aren't really innovative in any way and i think that you do get more into it by the end but i think that's just like because the emotion just really is put more in the forefront at that point and the resolution that you're getting to you you just have a more um emotional connection to and like, yeah, overall, it's just a, a fine movie. You know, we have a, a very strong international feature race this year, and I would not say that this would rank highly among that group, but it it's a decent movie, and I can understand why people would be moved by it, but I did not find it to be an exceptional achievement. I saw The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, but unfortunately, uh, I think due to the timing of this podcast recording, and when even when it drops... Because social media embargo is lifting pretty soon. I don't think uh, I'll be able to give my thoughts here. But I did see it, and I'll be talking about it more on the podcast uh, pretty soon. And I also saw Chicken Run, Dawn of the Nugget, which is perfectly okay. (laughs) It's not a bad movie. It's uh, It's not a great movie either. It does feel like it is... Playing off of things that the first film did uh, extraordinarily well, Um, they're trying to make it better, but to me it just comes off as a bit more of a been there, done that type of feeling. It's charming. It's got its funny moments. I don't agree necessarily with all of the uh, voice casting that they did here um, in terms of like some some of the names carried over from the original film, some of them didn't. Um, But overall, like everybody still seemed to fit their roles pretty well. I am now starting to just go back and forth, though, on whether or not if I see this getting into animated feature in the end or not. I mean, Artman Animations has a pretty good track record all around with getting their films into the animated feature race because it has that unique stop-motion style that uh, a lot of people just find to be incredibly um, endearing and it wins them over. But I just don't know if this movie has, especially in this year where animated feature is so competitive... I, I just don't know if it's going to necessarily make it in the end. It might because it's coming out late and might be on voters' minds a bit more. But I think if I were Netflix, I would be trying to push Nimona instead as my contender for this category. That's just me personally, though. I still think the movie's good. Like, it, it's it's just not... It, it's not the original. It never could be the original. And it never was going to top the original. So, mm. that's that. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet, but obviously I do want to because I do love that first movie so much. But even when I watch the trailer, it's like, you know, I love Tandaway Newton, but I I just remember the original Ginger voice so much in my head. And it's it's hard for me to get over that right now. 
Yeah, and Zachary Levi is also not my favorite person at the moment right now, Ivor, which is so funny to go from Mel Gibson to Zachary Levi. I know. It's like, well, <laughs> what, what a substitution. <laughs> hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, uh, let's uh, talk about some stuff that's going on in awards season right now. You know, this past week, we ended up getting the uh, British Independent Film Award nominations, and we also got the Hollywood Music and Media Award nominations. Now, as I was mentioning earlier, you know, you kind of want to take these things with a grain of salt. I don't think it's, like, crazy to look at something that's absent here and be like, oh, no, like, that's not here. But you can start to get an idea of looking at things that are being mentioned, especially, like, with the Hollywood Music and Media, because there's just so many categories that... You know, if something is left off, you do have to wonder, how did this get left off in favor of this? <laughs> um, but I wouldn't, like, dive too much into this. What I am going to do, though, is I am going to use this as an opportunity to ask you all some questions, some questions that have been on my mind over the last couple of days pertaining to this year's award season. So looking at Best Original Score in particular right now. This is a category where I think we're all in agreement that it's Oppenheimer's to lose at the moment. Am I right? Absolutely. Yes. Yep. Okay. So then we would all probably agree that Killers of the Flower Moon for Robbie Ritt, uh, uh, Robertson will probably also get in. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. I guess so. Yeah. Oh. oh. I didn't. I just. I just personally didn't love that score. I think it kind of bogged down the pacing of the film. But that's just me. That's totally personal bias. <laughs> Thomas Newman, branch favorite, Elemental. How are we feeling? Eh. Listen, it, it even either way over. So okay, I, I think you could go either way. I, I don't think this kind of newer academy I have found is not so devoted to like those branch favorites as they used to be. So I don't really like if this was maybe five or ten years ago, I would say absolutely he's getting nominated. I I feel less certain about that now, but. I do think that he is in a good position to be nominated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember predicting him for the little things a few years ago on that logic. Mm -hmm. On at least yeah. Thomas Newman, he got in for freaking passengers. So, of course, he's going to get in for this. And even in that wacky year, he didn't. So, I think you may be right, Josh. But we have some newcomers in this category. We've got uh, Jerskin Fedricks for Poor Things, which I think that's one of the most memorable scores I've heard this year. It's certainly one of the most unique. And given that it's a best picture uh, front runner, top three contention, I would say that he could get brought in along with the film. But then again, the branch might choose to leave him out in favor of someone like um, an Alexander Desplat or a John Williams for Indiana Jones. You know, like once again, like favoring a branch favorite. I have poor things in actually right now. So yeah, I, do, I, I too. do think that will get in. I do too. Yeah, I do too. I'm just saying like, watch out. Um, how do we feel about past lives though, getting into this? Because this is the one where I'm like really starting to teeter. Cause I think it all hinges on how do you feel about past lives overall at this stage <laughs> in the game? That's the I've, question. <laughs> I've had this in for a very long time. <laughs> I listen to the score a lot. I really think it's, I feel like it could be um, an everything everywhere all at once where when it gets in, you're like, oh, 
Okay, that's a cool nomination. I, I feel like that for Past Lives. And I think also we kind of talked about this in, um, the chat, in our chat recently, you know, if like you do have Past Lives in picture and if you don't think it's going to be this year's Women Talking where it's just original or a screenplay in picture, you're going to need some things to, you know, give it half to get that picture nomination if you have it in. or Or you don't have it in. Or, yeah, you could just do that and ruin my day. But, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, even the women talking comparison, like, we all thought that score was going to get nominated for women talking. That was very surprising that it didn't. I agree. But, I mean, it's – I feel like past lives is probably going to be liked more generally than women talking. I don't – I feel like with women talking, it was very much like a lot of people respected it but didn't really, like – Love it, but for past lives, there's been a, a, there's a genuine passion for that film. The difference, I think, is that Women Talking had a lot of areas it could have gotten in. You know, if they really liked it, it could have gotten to maybe three acting nominations. It could have gotten even, like, costumes. If it was one of those movies that just got everything. The ceiling for past lives is low. You know, this is, like, six nominations. This is absolute best day. And right now I do have it in for best score, which, again, might be a little bit of hope dictating because I also love the score quite a bit. But the category has found room recently for these smaller independent films with, you know, less obtrusive scores than uh say indiana jones i'm like just looking at banshees of finish here in last year which granted was a very strong movie with the academy but there is a path there also with that score it's the very like sound of it is very reminiscent of something like emil masari's for um minari hmm. all right so here's my question about this category then between the two animated features outside of elemental if there was to be two anime features nominated alongside it, would it be The Boy in the Heron for Joe Hizahashi or Daniel Pemberton for Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse? Pemberton. Yeah, I would lean towards Pemberton. I I guess so. I really hope I'm wrong. <laughs> I would love if Joe Hizahashi could get in. He should, frankly, probably have two Oscars by now for the work he's done with Miyazaki, just some of the most beautiful music ever composed for film. Um, but... I, I guess it just matters. It just comes down to which film is stronger overall, you know? I mean, there's room in this category for movies that don't automatically win Best Anime Feature to get in, like How Train Your Dragon got in and then didn't win Best Anime Feature. But I don't know. I mean, it just depends on how much they like Spider-Man. I think they like Spider-Man more than The Boy and the Heron, personally. Yeah. I mean, the reactions I keep hearing to Boy and the Heron is that there are certain people who love it and will rate it, you know, 10 out of 10, 5 out of 5, you know, perfect remarks. But the majority of people I'm hearing who see that movie are left confused, a little bewildered by it, saying it's good, but it's not like Miyazaki's best. And I think that sentiment will carry over into other areas where the film could be contending outside of animated feature. I guess so. I, I To play devil's advocate as somebody who wasn't as blown away by Spider-Man as everybody else, I mean, you could also say there's that argument that a lot of people had that this doesn't feel like a full movie. No, there's a third one coming. We can just wait till then. So there's arguments on both sides. Okay, and then for best original song, because the Hollywood Music and Media Award nominations have a lot of song categories here to look at. Let's say only two songs from Barbie end up getting into best original uh, song. I think that's like the thing now, right? Like you can't have yeah. three anymore. You could submit three, but I think you can only have two get in. Exactly. So which so which two do you think we're, are getting in? 
I'm Just Ken and the Billie Eilish song. See, I actually have a lot of suspicion about I'm Just Ken because yes, that is a the signature song, I feel like, from that movie for sure. And a lot of people do love it. But it also has a lot of stuff that I don't really feel like the branch goes for. Like it's an overtly comedic song, which tends to struggle. It has a dance break in the middle of it, which also they tend to not really like. I I feel like people are setting themselves up that this is a guarantee, and I do not think it is a guarantee to get nominated. I completely agree. I almost think it's like in Kanto with We Don't Talk About Bruno, where it's like the bigger hit didn't get nominated, and yet they still find a way to somehow convince Ryan Gosling to perform it on the ceremony, <laughs> despite it's not nominated. Yeah, it reminds me of when Mary Poppins Returns yep. was coming out a few years ago, and everybody mm-hmm. was talking about that uh, that freaking song with the the, the, the chimney, chimney sweeps that yeah. weren't chimney sweeps or whatever. I don't remember the movie. And I was I was all season saying, no, no, it's going to be the ballad. It's going to be the ballad. That's how they always go, and that's how it ended up being. You know, I'm scrolling right now. I can't even find the last time a song that was this overtly comedic was nominated. You know, there was South Who's Park maybe? a few years ago. Yeah, there, I mean, there was Who's a few years ago, but that song is not funny. No, yeah, the Same with, is a like, serious song. Exactly. I mean, When a Cowboy Trades His First for Wings is kind of amusing, I guess, but the tone of the song is not trying to make you laugh. Like, that's just not kind of the thing they go for recently. I, I will say what I think does help I'm Just Ken, besides it being, like, an integral song to the film in the middle for that character is that there's a pretty strong chance Ryan Gosling could get a supporting actor nomination. If you're going to play his clip, it's literally going to be the scene where he's walking and he's doing the gestures as he's singing. I'm just Ken at the end. Like I, they're going to want, like if these strike hype, like ends amicably soon, you know, they're going to want Barbenheimer. They're going to want Gosling performing it. It is. It, I, I, I really feel that they're going to go with I'm Just Ken. I'm not saying it's going to win or nothing. I, I think, you know, they'll probably lean more towards um, the Billie Eilish song. But I've seen a lot of conversation about, like, you know, the maybe the Dua Lipa song instead of I'm Just Ken, which to me that feels more like the um, the song in Top Gun last year that plays on the beach that misses. Like, it's just a fun, you know, poppy song compared to, like, I'm Just Ken is to a lot of people, like, some of the highlight of that film. I don't I deny it's a highlight. It's... Yeah. And yeah, well, what is I made for is a song that I keep hearing on the radio. I keep yeah. hearing it played in department stores I walk oh, yeah, into. That's I heard at the that airport is. the other day. <laughs> yep. I can I just think it's funny that, you know, we're not even saying which Bobby Barbie song is gonna get in or potentially could win. It's like, what's the second one that's gonna get in? We're yeah. Just, yeah. It's just so strong right now. Color purple. Not campaign and keep it moving on the FYC website, but yet it got nominations from the Hollywood Music and Media uh, Awards the other day. What do we make of that? I mean, musicals love to do this where they throw in a song that wasn't on the stage show so that they can get nominated. And it's almost always not as good as the other songs or really fits into the score. But we obviously can't say anything yet because nobody here has seen it. I do. I did have this pretty high up on my roster until we all noticed that it wasn't being campaigned and took it off. But I guess now I have to reconsider it. And going back to past lives again, I think even more so than score, I think Quiet Eyes could be that additional nomination for past lives. I I have it in. I have both of those in. Oh, you have both. Okay. Yep. Hmm. 
I mean, look, yeah. it, it, the again, I hate to make that comparison to everything everywhere, but like that was the one where I'm like, score got it, and then Song got in for that too, and I was like, okay, wow, they actually went with that. Although, I mean, sure, I, yeah, I will, I will just say though that everything everywhere was winning Best Picture. Like, yeah, yeah, I know. I was about to preference that. The love with that was, like, yeah. I totally agree that like the overwhelming love for that film is what helped carry it to overperform in noms. But I just think with Song this year, it's very. I'm going to say terrible, but it's very weak. It's not a, a completely strong line to where at this point we're like, wow, okay, two, besides the two Barbie songs, you know, what a Diane Warren song. And it's like, what else is going to be here? You know, I, I, it makes sense that it can slide in. All right. I'm going to pivot over now away from score and song, uh, talking about the British Independent Film Award nominations and using that as a talking point for some other questions I have here. Giovanni, you just recently watched Bobby Wine, The People's President. What are the odds of that getting into documentary feature? Because I'm seeing that popping up more and more and more lately. I don't see it. I'm not the greatest expert when it comes to documentary. Um, I do feel that when you watch it, it's, it's very simplistic in how it's made, but the material and what it's about is very gripping, you know, with with uh, the whole um, – Bobby Wine's presidential um, aspirations and him running against, you know, the Ugandan president Musvani and and um, that whole regime. And it's very harrowing. Uh, you watch it in some moments. You're like, man, I don't know how this film was made. So uh, maybe through that lens, it can wow people enough. I know that when I went to see it, I saw it with uh, with Dan Bear and. At the end for the Q and A, they actually brought out the real Bobby Wine, and the crowd did, you know were like, wow, and they were so enthused. And I, as a film itself, the quality, I don't know if it reaches like that level, but I mean, the story itself and what it represents, it could win people. So I'm not going to completely take my eyes off of it, but I don't personally have it in. I also think it's really, really telling that in the best international independent film category amongst movies like Anatomy of a Fall, Fallen Leaves, and Monster, Past Lives is in there i was every screening i've gone to in the past like week or so like doesn't matter what movie it is somehow past lives has been brought up every time like i have no doubt in my mind that the precursors are going to go hard for past lives the same way i think they went for after sun last year mm -hmm. all of us strangers did really well with the biffas here exceptionally well <laughs> josh picture nominee like, because here's the thing, I'm hearing this more and more lately. Yeah, I'm hearing yeah. more and more people feeling like, no, this movie's really beloved. It could very easily get into picture. I'm of the belief that this will be Andrew Haig's first Oscar nomination, but it will be for adapted screenplay, and that will be the only nomination it gets. Yeah. Where are you at? Th that is exactly where I'm at right now. I do think that this movie has a lot of passion behind it. I think it is also still a little divisive, too. I, I think that there are some people who watch it, especially after the hype from others, that are like, it's okay. It, it, it's not a great movie. I've been hearing that, too. But I do feel like this really feels like it could be a a lone screenplay nominee, and the writer's branch will come through for it. But in other categories, it it will struggle to break through. Uh, yeah, that that's sort of where I'm at right now, that it – Obviously, very beloved movie, but will struggle in other categories, and it will be a lone screenplay nominee. Anatomy of a Fall. Can it get in alongside the Zone of Interest into Best Picture, and we could have two international films nominated in that category? Or 
Is it one or the other? Or do both mess? I feel like all three are possibilities. <laughs> I have both in, but they are like the the bottom of my like 10. They are it's I think with anatomy, you know, not being selected. I, I've said this before. I don't think it being selected as Francis pick helps it. I don't think it's going to make director. But I think, you know, it's getting actress possibly and um, uh, a screenplay um, really help give it you know, like enough juice to get in the picture lineup. Whereas for Zone of Interest is my absolute like 10 and I feel that with Zone of Interest, it's a film that I really am banking on the international crowd and how how much um, the voters have changed over in the past five years to really go to bat for it and seeing how this is a film of such um, artistic importance and how unique it is. And that's what will carry it in for someone like Glazer getting in that director lineup. But it is admittedly a tough watch, you know, and it's a film that not everyone is going to love. But I think there is a world where both of them get in, but then there's also a world where, like you said, one of them gets in or again, they could both miss. Yeah, I still feel like Glazer probably being a best director nominee for the Zone of Interest, or at least to me, a safer bet to be nominated than uh, Anatomy of a Fall means that I still, not confidence, I'm not going to say that, but I still feel pretty good that that is going to help Zone of Interest for Best Picture because Glazer feels so assured in the directing category. Like, I am still of the belief that if you're going to get nominated for Best Director in a year of 10, that your movie's going to get in for picture. And until I am proven wrong, I... I will still keep going with that logic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just looking at our predictions now, and nearly all of us have both films in the last two two or three slots. Yeah, they are my nine. Myself included. Uh, I think Zone of Interest is in a slightly better spot. I mean, just every reaction from here we hear from it is just stunning. Whereas I've I've heard some more divisive reactions for Anatomy of the Fall. Granted, that's totally anecdotal. But I do think Zone of Interest feels like the kind of international feature that does get in here. And, you know, we it is it does seem risky to say two could get in, as I currently have predicted. But we keep seeing every year this new Academy do something risky and unexpected compared to how we usually view things. Okay, Sandra Huller is set, right? Like, I mean, Anatomy of a Fall's worst day, she still gets in, right? Yeah, I feel like her and screenplay are probably good, if nothing else. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with Cody. I mean, it would be a real travesty, like a true, like, crime of the year if she were not make it in. Yep. And the film got completely blanked. Yep. So, at bare minimum, I feel good about that. Yeah, she's a a solid number four right now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I agree. Like, practically across the board in all predictions. I know this is a movie that not many of you, or any of you, I don't know, have seen yet, but... um, the Peasants, dual nominated for international feature and animated feature, yes or no? Mm, animated, yeah, I'm feeling good about that. Oh, God, international just is so tough. It really is. International is crazy this year. Yeah. Like, this is way, way too many good options to go through. I, I can also do a little bit of a flip on this and ask you, too, what about the possibility of 20 Days of Mariupol? getting into international and documentary. I, I think, again, it's it's the same thing of uh, documentary, yes, but God, the international feature race this year is just so competitive. It like And 
you'd never know what's going to happen when that shortlist comes out because there's some wild decisions that can come about just from that. So I I don't know. Like it's in a good position to do so, I think. But the international feature category this year just seems like it's so fluid with so many possibilities. I would even go so far as to say if you were to take the 10 best international films of the year and put them up against the 10 best non-international films of the year, I might be tempted to say that I prefer the international films more this yeah. year. I think I think the category is so incredibly stacked and competitive. There's so many great options to go through this year. It's like really, really tough for me to, to distill this down to five to the point that I am beginning to wonder at what point, if ever, in the future, do you think we'll get to a point where they might decide to increase the international uh, slots from five to something. I don't think that's going to ever happen. <laughs> I think they were pretty reluctant to even do it with Best Picture, honestly. So I, I don't think it's going to increase the slots. It just means that it's going to be a very heartbreaking process every year, as it usually is in this category. Yeah. Okay, uh, why don't we take a bit of a detour here to discuss the polls for last week's poll. We asked everyone, which is your favorite horror movie from 2023 so far? I mentioned earlier, my favorite, I think, is now When Evil Lurks. I was pretty blown away by that. Cody, what is yours? You know, I'm still pretty high on Scream 6, and granted, I haven't seen it in like six months, but When Evil Lurks is definitely up there for me. Giovanni? Uh, I would probably have to go and talk to me. Josh? You know, I know that we uh, disagree on this movie, Matt, but Skinmarink still is a film that has not left my mind since I saw it all the way back in January. It is one of the most like visceral <laughs> movie experiences that I've had in a very, very long time. And I, I know that movie is not for everybody, but it left such an impact on me when I saw it. And I, I still have to give that a shout out. All right. Yeah, I think about that almost every day. <laughs> that movie really got me. My palms were sweating when I was watching that movie. Josh, I cannot remember the last time a horror movie did that to me. I still think it would have been effective as a short, but that's just me. I get it. I understand it. Like, not everybody has had that reaction, but I can't deny that for myself. Okay, let's see what the MVP film community did here for a top 10 for best horror movies of 2023 so far. They voted on this during spooky Halloween week. Everybody was pretty festive and in the spirit. Here we go. Number 10. Skinamarink. Hey, there we go. Glad I made the 10. <laughs> yeah. <awesome. laughs> Number nine. I, I I have not seen this movie. I know it's streaming. Totally killer. You know, I just started hearing about that. It's on Prime, yeah, I, I did believe. Too. And I, I didn't get to check it out yet, but I heard enough good word from people I trust that I might, might give it a look. I heard it's a horror comedy, uh, slasher horror comedy is what, what is what I've heard. Yeah, and those can be tricky. Like, I wasn't really into Happy Death Day, for example, but I'm willing to try. Uh, number eight. Yes. Yes. Number eight is When Evil Lurks. Yeah, I think the word really got out amongst horror heads quickly to check this out. And, you know, Shutter exclusives are not always the best. So when there's a good yeah. one, it's really something to rally around. I mean, what was really great, too, about watching that movie was after I was done with it, I then looked at the poster later and I was like, oh, God, that's yeah. what that is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Evil truly was lurking. Mm, God, I need to see this movie. <laughs> Number seven, No One Will Save You. I've not seen this. Caitlin Deaver, it's on Hulu. 
Oh, oh, is that the one with the uh, the alien like movie? And it's the okay, yeah. I know, I know. Okay, yeah. I, I, I still like didn't get a chance to see it. Yeah, yeah, I've heard about it. Yeah, it's a good movie. I I did enjoy it. I think that the gimmick of like there being no dialogue in it felt like I don't know if I was all in for that. And the one thing also for me is that the design of the aliens I thought was pretty uninspired. I didn't really care for that too much, but it was a nice like exercise i did have fun with it but if i didn't think that it was an amazing movie but it was a good time number six. Oh, josh has opinions here number six saw x <laughs> good movie i will say <laughs> i i enjoyed it cody between saw x and fast x um oh my God. No, I'm <laughs> number five Ooh, ooh, okay. I did not think this would place this high. Number five is Infinity Pool. Okay. I, still I mean, awesome. Awesome. I mean, that came out so long ago. That was in January. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Our voters are based. Thank you. That was great. <laughs> Infinity Pool is so much fun. Number four, Evil Dead Rise. Really good movie. Yeah, just another solid entry in a pretty flawless horror franchise. And the same could be said about number three, Scream 6. Yep. It's uh, pretty fun. damn entertaining. Yep. Number two, the birth of a new possible horror franchise. Chucky for 2023. It's Megan. <laughs> I still have okay. not seen Megan. I mean, it's not scary, but OK, fine. <laughs> well, it's fun. It's it's fine. It's it, of the kind of internet camp self-aware movies of which there were more than one this year. This is probably top of the heap. I had a, I had way more fun with this than I was ever imagining I would. I went into this thinking this was going to be like one of the worst movies of the year. If I remember correctly, I think it was also a January release. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was like the first movie I saw this year, basically. Yep. And Dan Bear and I, oh boy, did we laugh our asses <laughs> off during this movie. <laughs> uh, number one, I don't think this should be a surprise to anyone. Number one is Talk to Me. Yeah, not surprising at all. Yep. Yep. I just want to say uh, to all the voters out there, uh, no Pope's exorcist kind of hurts my feelings. I just want to <laughs> say that. But you misspoke. It's pronounced the Pope sexorcist. Thank you. very much. Yeah. But don't worry. When the sequel comes, you guys have another chance. OK, so I'll, I'll let it slide. I'm not going to say in which order these were, but these were some of the runners up that didn't make the top 10. Knock at the cabin. Liked it. It was fun. I loved it. Totally. It's my really thing. Good. A haunting in Venice. Oh, <laughs> spooky. <laughs> okay. I think that movie, to be honest with you, like, I, I think people are being a little kind to that film just because it's not as bad as the other ones. I did not find <laughs> it to be a great film. It was, yes, it was better than, like, Death on the Nile, but I still found it to be pretty flawed. I think people are grading that movie on a curve, to be honest. El Conde? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's weird to say it's a horror movie, but, you know, the protagonist is a vampire, so I I guess it does technically count. Some pretty gory moments in that movie, too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I also just really, really love the cinematography in that movie a lot, too. Some of the best of the year. Yeah. And uh, last one I'll I'll throw out here, uh, The Blackening. I've not seen it. It's fun, as I said earlier. It's fine. Yeah, I, I... thought it was just okay okay so for this week's poll for the release of david fincher's the killer which will soon be on netflix but is currently playing in limited release we are asking everyone which is your favorite michael fassbender performance it's been a couple of years since we've seen him on the big screen 
What do you guys think? Michael Fassbender, not the longest filmography. I was kind of shocked when I was going through uh, the performances to list here. I was like, wow, he actually hasn't been in as many movies as I thought. But man, he's made such an impact over a very short period of time. Uh, So... I, I mean, I listen, I think we're all going to say shame or yeah. Steve Jobs for the most part. So can we like brush those aside and maybe highlight something else? <laughs> yeah, I do feel like those are going to be the top two for a lot of people. Um, certainly, I would say that for myself. So if I'm looking for something that's outside of that. I do feel like it's probably going to be hunger. I'm going to go with the role where he doesn't show his face. Frank. Yeah, I think we can all agree that he should have won for Steve Jobs, at least amongst that dismal lineup that year yeah. and definitely should have been nominated for shame. Like 12 Years of Slave should not have been his first nomination. But that being said, in name of going somewhere else, I really love his work in Prometheus. Oh, yeah, he's very great good in, in that. that. Yeah, he's yeah. great in the sequel, too, where I, if I remember correctly, he like makes, makes out with himself. With himself. <laughs> yeah. yeah, which is all well and good. But that performance and he also says one. to himself, now I'll do the fingering. <laughs> Well, awesome. Listen, Josh, big things have small beginnings. Yes. Wow. Okay, but Prometheus, anyway, um, <laughs> that performance is really something special. You know, he's playing an android and it's not like she's not like other robots. <laughs> it's a little bit different. <laughs> um, it's just a really great performance. I would probably have to, you know what, since we're just doing things, uh, one scene killer. I'm always a fan of someone who comes to the uh, at bat, just hits a home run. Him and Inglorious Bastards, and especially that bar sequence, mm-hmm. is so great and so integral to that movie. That was probably one of the first experiences I think I had with seeing Michael Fassbender in a film. And then, of course, I want to be incredibly uh, with filled with recency bias because it is one of my favorite movies of the year. He is amazing in The Killer, just an absolutely cold and calculated and just super dedicated. Like him and Fincher together were just absolutely perfect pairing. I also think he brought a lot, like more than I think that was even on the page to his performance as Magneto, Eric Leshner in uh, the X-Men movies. Yeah, no, probably one of the few things that was good about those movies. Yeah, I mean, like him and his... Uh, his uh, uh, chemistry with James McAvoy, I mean, was the heart and uh, soul of those movies. And I just thought he brought an incredible amount of like gravitas to that role that made those movies feel more important than the typical like blockbuster fare that you probably thought they would be. Um, so I, I, I got to give him a shout out for that because it's it's very rare that you see a performer like elevate the material like that as much as he did. All right, well, head on over to the polls page at nextbestpicture.com and cast a vote here for your favorite Michael Fassbender performance, and we'll announce the winners on next week's show. And now, talking about some trailers here for some movies that we have coming out, we've got 20th Century Studios releasing the teaser for West Ball's Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. This is going to be coming out next year on May 24th, 2023. And already, I'm thinking about next year's Best Visual Effects Oscars. <laughs> Let's take a look and let's give some thoughts. When I sleep, I see strange things. Memories? Not memories. New things. I see. Everything. 
is not everything. I mean, I'm always going to be game for another Apes movie because I really do like that the previous trilogy that we got. But uh, I don't know. I also feel a little weird about this one, and I don't know why. I think the lack of Andy Serkis is yep. probably the thing yeah. that for me is hurting the most here. Yeah, yeah Matt Reeves, saying. too. Yeah, no Matt Reeves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As soon as you said West Ball, I was like, oh, the Maze Runner guy. Okay. But then again, like the images that we're seeing in this trailer at least have visual continuity with the previous Apes movies. So that does give me a bit of confidence. So is it a I, sequel to like the previous three? Is this like a new thing? Because like I thought they wrapped up everything good enough for me. Like where I, well, if you look at the first three is like the journey of the Caesar character played by Andy Serkis. And yes, like that's the end of that trilogy. But Set within the same world as those movies taking place, I believe they say years after the events of War for the Planet of the Apes. Like this is still like in theory, yes, this is meant to be a a, a sequel, but kind of I guess the start of a new trilogy. I would imagine. Ugh, this is exhausting. <laughs> you know, it kind of looks like we're getting closer to the storyline of the original 60s Planet of the Apes. Like, there's one shot of some humans being chased in a way that really evoked yep. mm-hmm. that original movie, so I wonder if we're just gonna eventually end up there again. <laughs> you know, the snake-eating tale of IP filmmaking nowadays. I think so. Time is a circle, you know? We just go back and forth. <laughs> I almost wonder, like, what they are gonna call the next movies. Like, what, like what, what, you know, because we got... Rise of the Planet of the Apes, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, War for the Planet of the Apes. This one's called Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Is the next one going to be called Fall of the Planet of the Apes? <laughs> yeah, it's, some shit it's like got, that. This series has the worst naming of any franchise. Truly. I can never remember which one is which because oh, you think Rise comes before Dawn, which is not how the sun works. Like, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> and I know I watched this, you know, it's a trailer I watched on my phone, which is how I'm sure most of us watched this. But it's just me or do the visual effects just look not quite as impressive as at least the last one. Oh, I disagree. I think they I think they do look as impressive. Mm, maybe I need to see it on big screen. But I was I mean, I'm maybe the most down on this franchise on this podcast. It is really not my thing. They don't do anything for me. So I will see this eventually. <laughs> but this trailer didn't do anything to turn somebody like me who was a skeptic into somebody who was suddenly excited. I do think that what could be different here, Cody, is that, you know, obviously Matt Reeves not directing, but also to a different cinematographer than what Reeves was utilizing on those apes movies, too, could also yield a different kind of aesthetic, if you will. But from what I can tell, it seems like the character animation and how these apes are like rendered so far from what I can see in this trailer. Like I said, there did seem to be some visual continuity with the previous films, at least from what I can tell. I mean, like, even though I didn't love the films as films, <laughs> as storytelling pieces of art, I did recognize that they were impeccably well made. You know, it probably should have won visual effects three times. The cinematography and the score was always great. And I just didn't get that same energy from this trailer. Mm. Yeah, I am not I'm just not fully as invested with this one, it seems like, which is a a shame because I actually did like those previous three movies. I especially War. I think War for the Planet of the Apes was my favorite of that and was like was on my top ten. I, I loved that movie. But I also sort of felt like when they were done, I was good. I felt like they concluded that story pretty well. And I don't know what is really left here that can get me invested, but 
I'm I'm still slightly interested, but I'm not as ecstatic as I think a fan of those previous movies should be. Yeah, we're, we'll see. I mean, like I said, I think not having Andy Serkis uh, certainly hurts. I would have actually have felt better if I knew that Andy Serkis was directing. Really? Uh, I, don't <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> Just to know that he had like some sort of hand in this somehow, you know? I mean, but his directorial output so far has been wild. <laughs> Didn't take you for a big Venom, let there be carnage guy. <laughs> no, no. Matt really loves Breathe. Oh, yeah. That's true. <laughs> I am curious to see some of these actors, though, playing apes in this movie. It's going to be it's going to be interesting. Oh, yeah. And like I was saying earlier, other than uh, Doom Part 2, at least we can kind of cross this off as another visual effects contender next year. Yeah, that won't win. All right. And then our second trailer for this week is for The Fall Guy from director David Leach, starring Ryan Gosling, Emily Blunt, a few others. Coming out March 1st, 2024, right before the Oscars. Will this be the month of Ryan Gosling? Let's take a look and let's give some thoughts. Anyone but him. I didn't approve him. You know that. You are literally the last person on earth I want to see. Slap the shit out of you. I really could. And I'm open to that in a safer environment. a ghost no phone call no text it's not like i didn't want to apologize you don't have to explain anything it was just a flame so how have you been god i hate that thumbs up stunt guy stuff i'm the director we're gonna set this man on fire you're a stunt guy we need to keep it super profesh profesh is my middle name you said your middle name was danger now did you know this is based on a tv show <laughs> what yeah, yeah. Based on yep. a TV show from the 80s of the same name, which I had no idea, and the trailer doesn't highlight at all. <laughs> really bizarre. Yeah. Wow. I watched this trailer, and I thought, one, is this trailer way too long and shows the entire movie? Yes. Yep. Two, does this just not look good? Yes. Yep. Three, will I be there opening night because Ryan Gosling is in it? Yes. <laughs> New personalities here. He looks amazing. The, the, as soon as I saw the scene with the, the door and he's just trying to scan the door, uh, the key card, I was like, okay, yeah, I'm watching this. It's I, I am. Goofy Ryan Gosling is the best Ryan Gosling. We've said it before, yep. and this is delivering upon that. And I listen, I got horrible ghosted PTSD when I was watching this trailer, oh God. which I still think is the worst movie I've seen this year. But... There's enough supporting talent with Stephanie Hsu and Aaron Taylor Johnson, Hannah Waddingham, Winston Duke, Emily Blunt is great. D David Leach, I'm not so sold on him necessarily in terms of his blockbuster uh, storytelling, but the guy certainly knows how to craft an action sequence. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And some of the stunts in this trailer, I mean, this movie is obviously about stunts to a large degree. Um, the uh, press line for this movie said it was also like David Leach's like most personal film to date. I'm, okay. All right. <laughs> sure. There's yeah. an element to this that I think could at least be fun. Yeah. Like, say what we want about Bullet Train. Like, I was like, this is the greatest thing ever. But like, it was breezy. And like, it was somewhat entertaining to watch like Brad Pitt do that shtick the whole time. I could do the same for Ryan Gosling. You know, it'll be funny yeah. if Gosling and Emily Blunt are both frontrunners for the Oscar when this comes out and are both starring in this. Which this is the Barbenheimer happen. sequel. This is <laughs> oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> I was uh, just thinking earlier, too, about how 
Emily, the connective tissue here of like Emily Blunt just recently starring in Pain Hustlers with Chris Evans, Chris Evans starring in The Gray Man with Ryan Gosling, and now this with Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt. <laughs> it's like the, just the crossover between those three movies for me. And given the uh, reactions I had to Pain Hustlers and The Gray Man, I'm starting to wonder if this is going to just fall within that same level of quality and this trailer kind of indicates so to me but listen i'm still willing to be pleasantly surprised when i watch this cody i remember reviewing hobbs and shaw with you on the podcast it's just you and i right <laughs> yep and that was a david leach film i remember uh you know like with uh, listen atomic blonde feels like it was ages ago and even that movie doesn't have like full support there are some detractors out there for it but I think the one consistent thing amongst David Leach's filmography from that to Deadpool 2 to Bullet Train and now from what I can see with this is at least I think it's going to at bare minimum deliver on the action front. You know, Hollywood needs totally standard foundational action directors who that's all they do. You know, we've had that in the past with people like Tony Scott. And I think if David Leach is willing to be that type of director, who are we to say stop making movies? Yeah. We need another Michael Bay. <laughs> sure. There's only yeah, ever one guess, Michael Bay. I guess we do. <laughs> yeah, Josh is right. There's only one Michael Bay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think this looks like it'll be a somewhat decent time. I, I agree that I think that David Leach can create some really compelling action sequences. The, his problem is stringing them together to make a compelling story. <laughs> That's yeah. usually where his movies fall down. And this trailer does not really dissuade me from that particular line of thinking either. But yeah, it, it might be fun. I don't have high expectations for it, but if it can be an entertaining ride, then that's all that I'm really looking for out of this movie. And it's got some good people in it, too. It's got a really nice cast. I mean, that part, too, where Gosling finds the body on ice and he just like falls backwards, grabbing that curtain. I was like, this is the kind of silly Ryan Gosling, like in the nice guys mode that I love. I love seeing him do stuff like this. Yes. Comedy Ryan Gosling is always the best. All right. So moving along here, let's get on over to the fan questions from the MVP film community. Let's see what they had to ask us for this week's show. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Ooh, Nicholas Spake. This is this is an interesting one, guys. Oppenheimer is no doubt going to get a ton of nominations. But with Leonardo DiCaprio, Bradley Cooper, Coleman Domingo, Paul Giamatti, and Jeffrey Wright all having their movies released later in the year, do you think Killian Murphy could be the shocking snub on Oscar nomination morning? Mm. No, I don't no. I don't think so. I think that there is a lot of goodwill. Not just obviously for that movie, but I think for him as an actor, too, that I I think given the strength of the film and his own narrative, he'll still make it in. Especially yeah. if we look at who's voting for that category, which is the acting branch. And we already, sorry, basically know that they're going to love Robert Downey Jr. and give him a nomination, possibly win. Emily, Brunt, Emily Blunt, I'm pretty sure we all feel, is getting her first nomination. Some people are even saying maybe Matt Damon. I don't think they're going to stop 
and not nominate the man who plays the person who's the title of the movie. It would become our new Amy Adams and Arrival, Tom Hanks, Captain Phillips, if it were to happen. I'll tell you that much. Like, it would be, like, shoot to the top of the list of the most egregious, awful, how the hell could this possibly happen snubs in the history of the Academy? Yeah, it would. I mean, I my first thought was Amy Adams as well, but the difference there is that movie was, like, picture, director, screenplay, and then all crafts. It didn't have any other acting contenders. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I think it's, I just think it's, not going to happen, and it will be hugely shocking. It will be the new Tom Hanks and Captain Phillips if it does happen. Now, after you brought up that question, though, the person I'm thinking, after seeing American Fiction last night, I'm really starting to think more that like there's a chance that Giamatti might be that person. I do not know why yeah. there's no substantial base to it. Like I see that movie as like a top five contender. I think it's going to perform well, but for some reason, I just do not know that. Like I think either Giamatti is going to miss and Wright and Coleman get in, or Wright takes Coleman's spot. Like one of the, I think there's going to be a snub somewhere. I, I really think right now where I'm landing today. Because so much of the driving force of Giamatti's campaign has been, we didn't recognize him for sideways. This is our makeup opportunity to do that. So it would be kind of hurtful if they did it a second time. I'm leaning towards Coleman Domingo being this year's Danielle Deadweiler for me and him being the one that misses. Giamatti, though, it's not like he's not an Academy Award-nominated actor, though. That's my thing. Like, he's been yeah, nominated they, before. He got nominated for Cinderella Man. So, like, it's not like he's never... Sideways. Yeah, it's not like Absolutely. he's never been acknowledged by the Academy before. I, I feel like, you know, compared to, like, DiCaprio has just got this rave, and that movie's gonna be so strong. Like, it's like another Once Upon a Time. He's in. He's but clearly not But also think about winning. this, too. Think about how much Giamatti's career has evolved and progressed since the Sideways Cinderella Man back-to-back years. And look at how many people he's worked with. Look at the variety of projects he's worked on. I think the actor's branch views him as now this, I don't want to say veteran because he's not like necessarily old, but just someone that is so respected, I think, amongst actors that that's why I think he's getting in. That's why I think for Jeffrey Wright. And he's never been acknowledged before. And I think, again, like... But that's what leads me to Coleman Domingo, then. (laughs) uh, It's one of those two. It's one of those two. Like, I have the feel. It's like, ah, I just know someone's going to miss. And I just... It's going to be shocked. But I don't think it's going to be... Well, you know what? Somebody floated the idea to me the other day. What if it's DiCaprio? It's not. But what if it is? (laughs) I'm sorry. This is going to be Once Upon a Time all over again, where he's, like, clearly in, but clearly not winning. Like, he's just... He's there. Yeah, yeah, the funny I, thing is, right now, um, I think both lead categories have such a clear top three, and then it's mm-hmm. people fighting for four and five. You know, it's two people from Maestro, two people from Killers of the Flower of the Moon, and then Emma Stone and Kelly Murphy. And I, I, I would be shocked if any of those six mix, missed at all. Yeah, I, and the thing about the like Daniel Deadweiler comparison with with Coleman Domingo is that I think the difference though, is that what hurt Deadweiler was that people didn't want to see that movie because of the subject matter of that film. I don't think Rustin has a similar problem with that. I think it is, you know, it's definitely a movie designed to have a more broadly appealing base. And I, I'm, I am not quite sold on Giamatti yet still. And, and I know that a part of that may be my feeling about the movie too, but I think that, Coleman Domingo still is in a good spot, and I don't know if Giamatti is is so solid right now. I think I do think that that is a little bit more on shaky ground. And and the other thing is that if you drop Coleman Domingo and substitute him for Jeffrey Wright, 
Does that mean that every Best Actor nominee comes from a Best Picture nominee at that point? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you think Maestro yeah. is into, and I don't know if I can say that as well. Also, to Josh's point, I think with Giamatti and the holdovers, like, he's good. Like, I'm not going to say he's bad, but, like, it's more of just the same yelling Giamatti shtick that I personally have seen before. And then also, I think when we've talked about um, the holdovers, a lot of people consider Giamatti, like, the third best in show, like, compared to Divine Joyce Randolph or even Dominic Sessa, so. But I think that that's more of a film critic approach that I've been hearing. The general audiences that I know that are watching this movie and Academy voters, too, like, they're all in on the holdovers. They love this movie. Same thing with American Fiction, though. But one thing that's kind of also got me a little bit iffy about Jeffrey Wright is that performance, that particular performance, is not usually the type of performance that gets a Best Actor nomination. I I agree. Look, I agree. But, like, there's always exceptions that happen every year. I mean, like, if anything, if anything, he is Paul Giamatti in Sideways to a certain degree. <laughs> I think every, you know, every year there's always an exception. I think look at last year, you know, weak lineup. I know, sure. But like someone like Paul Maskell getting in for a performance like that is not really, you know, the type. I think there's always an exception. I just think the goodwill for Jeffrey Wright and just as someone who's been more so like, I wouldn't say bullish, but like about American fiction, maybe getting a picture, seeing how my crowd reacted and like, I, I get it. I, I totally get it. I oh, think it's getting Jeffrey in at this point. I, I like, I. Based on the audience award wins that it's been getting, and also, yes, like I've seen it twice now, both crowd reactions were that, like, that was the kind of thing that it clicked for me when I saw Green Book for the first time. And I looked around and I was like, oh my God, like, look how people are reacting to this, you know? Yeah. It has that kind of energy in the crowd when you're watching it, and people are buzzing about it when they get out of the theater, which is why, like, I, I love Jeffrey Wright in the movie. I truly do. I just don't see that as like a monumental like performance or anything like that. Um, I just think that like there's a part of me, there's a small part of me that still thinks that American fiction will just be picture screenplay and that's it. But I am putting Wright in and it kills me because then I do have to then remove one of these other five performances and <sighs> It's, it's yeah. tough. It, it is. I, and I'll tell you. And we, have, and we haven't even talked about Andrew Scott yet. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I know. I'll tell you what is going to be really interesting and what I'm going to be actually paying attention to is who SAG nominates. Because with Jeffrey Wright, like, you know, Critics' Choice will have six spots, so he'll probably get in there. Golden Globe is going to be in comedy. That'll happen. Yep. Uh, you know, if he gets in at BAFTA, there's a question mark as to whether or not, you know, that was a jury save. So, like, if he gets in at SAG and, like, that'll be significant. And then who he replaces at SAG, that will also be something to read into as well. And in, in determining how strong he really is in that race. Because I do think that the strength of the movie overall is definitely going to help him. And I think that will mean he will knock somebody out from that five that a lot of people have right now and i feel like for most people it's going to be either coleman domingo or paul giamatti okay uh benny dawson kind of uh continuing the loan uh the american fiction conversation here proven to be extremely crowd-pleasing coming from a fresh new writer director tackling social issues and literally being about an author despite going up against some heavy hitters could american fiction become our next lone screenplay winner you know Josh, you and I were talking about this. 
we had a conversation about this, and the more I think about it, to be honest with you, the more I think my next update with predictions, I might put American Fiction at number one in adapted screenplay. Now, when they say lone screenplay winner, they mean it's getting other nominations. That's just this only. Yeah, but that's the only way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it, got it, got it. Like the big short. I got nervous. I was like, You're, you can't not predict it for Best Picture. Yeah, no, play. no. I think they mean it's that's okay. the only win of its <laughs> nominations. Yeah. I mean, I'm starting to wonder if this is gonna spotlight Coda its way to Best Picture, honestly, with screenplay and just picture. Uh, um, I don't know if I'm gonna go quite that. I don't far know about yeah. Yet. I could see it happening. I could. I'm not quite there yet, but with screenplay, as we were talking previously matt like the it seems like there's so much focus on those top three being oppenheimer poor things and killers of the flower moon that i really feel like there's not real consensus amongst those three and it's pretty split right now and i think that because of that the solid support that might still remain consistent for american fiction will end up carrying it through and i mean and also court jefferson it's just everywhere he's such a great campaigner for this movie and people really do uh, love him and seem so endeared to him. I I am really, really seeing the scenario where that movie does win screenplay. All he had to do was say that he loved Next Best Picture to me, and I was like, oh, you're so cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think the comparison with Spotlight and Coda makes sense on paper, but I think the difference there is that the two movies that those were going up against, which is ostensibly, I guess you could say they're evidence, although maybe Big Short and Power of the Dog were both were all three of them much more divisive than Oppenheimer is. And I don't think people are going to be a lot of people are going to be putting American fiction above Oppenheimer. I mean, like, I just think that's such a clear number one at this point. Granted, never say never because Coda, like I know we'll be saying that forever, but Coda, but you know, something to take into consideration. Guys, what if also too? I'm going to add one more wrinkle to this adapted screenplay conversation. What if Barbie is also still in that category and it doesn't get into original? <laughs> like that would be the most stacked best adapted screenplay category maybe ever. <laughs> yeah, uh, I can't think about that right now. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't know. I mean, I would need to see how the rest of the season would play out. And oh, by the way, WGA Awards occurring after the Oscars this year. Okay, yeah. I will say, though, mm. that if there were ever a precursor that could afford to do that, I think WGA is the only one because of all of their disqualifications. Like, yes, they are still a very important precursor, and we can learn some things from them, but I th I tended to notice, like, in the past couple of years, like, especially by the time we get to the winners, I don't know if it really has that much of an impact on what our final predictions would end up being. So, like, I could not see this happening for any other precursor, uh, especially with the guilds and it being OK. But this is the only one where it's like, OK, if you want to delay, you're the only people that can actually do this. Uh, this is going to come going to go back to what we were saying earlier about international feature. Uh, Travis uh, Trav C77 asks, international feature seems to be the toughest category to predict this year. Do you see any potential yaks in the classroom that we should keep an eye out for? <laughs> oh, there's a movie from that same classroom. director. <laughs> yeah, The Monk and the Gun. True. Good call. I would say Totem is the one right now that is gaining a lot of momentum and is a smaller movie that could get in there. That's a Mexico submission this year. Yeah. People really seem to be loving that movie. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, and Shada. I wouldn't underestimate Shada. That's Sony Pictures oh, Classics. Such a good movie with maybe my favorite lead actress performance this year. Uh, Paul Meredith, in honor of Joe Biden watching Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning and getting concerned about AI, what other 2023 movie would you recommend that he watch? <laughs> oh boy. Uh, man, imagine Joe Biden watching Passages. Jesus. <laughs> I mean, he's clearly seen Oppenheimer, if he's anything like Barack Obama, right? No, he did. I think that was reported that he saw Oppenheimer. Yeah, he did. Okay. He yeah. did. He got out of it, and they recorded him. He was like, good film, good film. It's like, I feel like you just fell asleep during the movie. <laughs> he didn't really say nothing about it. I feel like now, I feel like now more than ever, we have to uh, remind all of our world leaders about the uh, dangers of nuclear war. Yeah. So. Yeah. It hurt. <laughs> Ethan. In honor of the release of The Killer, what are some of your favorite David Fincher movies? All of them. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he's ever made a bad film. And I'm yeah. even throwing Alien 3 into that mix, honestly. Alien well, 3 Alien 3, yeah, like even Alien 3, that movie, I always kind of look at it as like an unfinished film, if you yeah. know the history to it. Like it's, I don't really like that movie, but I also barely consider it a finished movie. It, it gets a pass from me is what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, I would recommend the making of documentary of that film. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but it is yeah fascinating. Like, it is honestly one of the best making of documentaries for a movie that I have ever seen because – and especially that it was produced by Fox at the time, but it is yep. so incredibly candid. Like, it's a shame that Fincher didn't participate in that one because it actually – there's so many people that will – be very truthful about the process of making that particular film. And it's, it's really, really good. No, anytime that any, uh, behind the scenes documentaries do that, I, I remember specifically the Peter Jackson ones with the, uh, the Hobbit trilogy. And it's like, Oh man, how the hell did you guys have the balls to allow them to, uh, release this? Because, you know, I mean, it's human. It's great when you hear the actual filmmakers saying what a tough, laborious, like project this was and how, um, it was miserable, you know? Not knowing if you were going to meet deadlines, there were like missing pieces and like, you know, just had to figure out ways to like put the stuff together. But I love that insightful look and behind the scenes of just there being real vulnerability behind how freaking hard it is to make a movie, you know? Yeah, but you don't get that all the time with no. those documentaries, especially ones produced by the studios. Uh, Son of Bonbon, in honor of Josh Hutcherson's uh, renaissance, <laughs> who on the MVP team is the most feisty and can actually survive till the last if the whole team was thrown into the Hunger Games? Well, one of us here looks a lot like Josh Hutcherson and is similarly, you know, tenacious. So I think I think we're all thinking about Will in this situation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Will's a lawyer. He he knows how to be cutthroat. <laughs> exactly. Will, Will also like goes to the gym and works out. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I'm pretty dangerous. Like, I feel like I could come up with some fucked up way to anyway, moving on. I'm climbing a tree, <laughs> so I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> BP Movie Review Hour. I was revisiting Gattaca a few weeks ago, and I thought about how it wasn't a big success when it first came out. What's a favorite movie of yours that took time for critics and audiences to appreciate or notice? Oh, man, that's that's such a big question. Oh, hmm. my go to underrated undervalued on the ups movie and maybe it's because i'm a spooky bitch but is dr sleep which 
did not make an impact when it came out. Did not make money. So good. But I know so, exactly. I know so many horror fans, especially as Mike Flanagan has just continued to rise, who are just constantly beating the drum for that movie. And I'm absolutely one of them. That director's cut is a masterpiece. You know, I think what I will say is, and I don't feel like this movie has really like been rediscovered totally yet, but I've been noticing like some people here or there are at least sort of recognizing this film as like a bit of a cult classic. And it always has meant so much to me when I was younger. Um, and that's Mars Attacks. I, you know, I, I always oh mention how that movie literally is the film that got me into watching movies, like watching that film in a movie theater at six years old, turned me into a cinephile. And I say that unironically. So, and like I said, I don't think that movie has like been totally reevaluated, but I have seen more people come around to it a bit and be like, Hey, this is actually kind of fun and weird. And, and I, I'm sure that's the reason why it didn't do that well in 1996, but I will always have a, a greater appreciation for that. Very, very odd film. That movie is the hardest PG-13 I've ever seen. Yes, it truly. It's because all the blood is green. You know what I got mind? Uh, John Carpenter's The Thing. Yeah. Not appreciated at the time of its release at all. Yeah. And I think it's like what risen up to become like for some people like his best movie, even better than Halloween in some cases. It's a straight up classic. You know, it's uh, it tops every list of not just greatest horror movies of the 80s, greatest horror movies of all time. It's been totally venerated by history. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. But there's an obvious answer here, guys. Blade Runner? No, it's the king of comedy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Biggest failure. That's what they call me. <laughs> Entertainment tonight. 83 to 84. <laughs> That's too perfect. That was... <laughs> yeah, obviously. It's that That's answer. Great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that was good. That was good. Uh, Aiden McHutchinson. Thoughts on the Hunger Games securing an interim agreement from SAG-AFTRA? Some people seem to be frustrated that a big-budget franchise temple was able to get one of these. I mean, it got it because Lionsgate agreed to the terms and conditions of the latest agreement that's been put forward. Yeah, like, it, it right. does seem weird that, yeah, a big movie got that agreement, but it got it because it, as you said, it agreed to the terms, which shows you that it's easy to agree to the terms then. <laughs> Exactly. If right. anything, it's great because it should be showing the AMPTP and who they represent, like their asses, how this can be done. Right. I mean, I am far from an expert on the strike and contracts and unions, but it seems to me like this is an example of what the other studio should be aiming for. I really, really hope. Could you, could, did you guys see the uh, update this morning? We got one of those last and final offers <laughs> that were being put forward. I'll tell you this, if they don't reach an agreement on this, I am really scared for what happens next, because with Thanksgiving right around the corner, we've been saying for weeks now that that is like the hard deadline to save 2024. If they go past Thanksgiving, and what I mean by this in saving 2024, I don't mean just television release schedule, movie release schedule. I'm talking also award season. Yeah. WGA will be the first of many dominoes that will fall if we don't get a new agreement before Thanksgiving. Fingers crossed. Okay, and in our final question for this week, I'm sure you all saw the cover story about this. Uh, this is from Oscar H. What are your thoughts on the current state of the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Let it burn. <laughs> Let it burn. I won't, yes. I won't, I'm not going to go that far. I'm not going to go that far. I will. But I have been saying this for a while now. I do think that like the movie musical or film noir or the Western, like this, this genre had its time. 
And the worst decision that they ever made, I think, was to build an entire studio with the sole purpose of just creating these types of movies over and over and over. Whereas I think that the way it was before where certain studios, whether it was 20th Century Fox or Sony or whatever it was, like had their own uh, properties and they could release their own films every now and then. But the market like became oversaturated when Marvel Entertainment Studios started pumping out not just films then, but then also television for Disney+. And at this point now, like superhero fatigue is truly real. It's not even a question anymore. And it feels like extra homework to have to keep up with everything. Not all the stories are going to land. And when you have them all coming out with four movies a year or three movies a year, plus all these television shows, not everybody's going to be able to watch everything. And then they're going to get lost and confused. You got to go back to a model where I think, you know, where each studio has like their own character or whatever it is. And maybe you're getting... Sure, two, three of these still a year, but there are gaps in between. Getting this much content from this type of storytelling is not doing anybody any favors. And they keep saying like, oh, this Echo television show is their first like TV MA uh, thing that they're doing and things like that. And that's going to help like keep things fresh and entertaining for viewers. Maybe for a little bit, maybe, but your your long-term problem is still going to exist here. I, I think that at a certain point, the industry needs to move on to a new. I mean, because that's, that's what they're going to do. I'm not saying they need to, but that's what they're inevitably going to do. They're going to move on to a new fad, if you will. Yeah, you know, just totally anecdotally, but my brother in law is the biggest Marvel person I know. He watches all the TV shows, he is there every night for every movie. He's not even excited for the Marvels. He, you know, we've had a conversation where it was like, do you want to go see that opening weekend? I don't know. It's only an hour 45. Oh, that is, <laughs> that is appealing. But just, I just don't feel any excitement for this at all or the MCU in general. No, me neither. And I haven't felt that way for a while. I mean, I've never really been that into the MCU to begin with, but I really do feel like Endgame was such a monumental conclusion for so many of these storylines that i i felt like it was always going to be difficult to continue that for a general audience and like look this franchise has had like over 10 years of really consistent success i mean that's incredible but it's not sustainable like eventually people are going to be get a little tired and want something different and that's just the nature of human behavior and so this isn't very surprising to me i kind of do hope that we can move on to something else just because I've never been that invested in these stories to begin with. But it does seem like, yes, generally speaking, audiences are probably getting a little tired of seeing the same thing over and over again. And especially now that you need so much other information, like you need both the movies and the TV shows to understand what's going on. I think that's a lot to ask for people. All right. Well, that'll do it here for episode 367 of the Next Best Picture podcast. Uh, we have a lot more stuff coming up in the future, as mentioned earlier. If you take a look at our awards calendar on nextbestpicture.com for 2023-2024, we have all of the updated dates here for nominations and award winners coming up. November, as I mentioned earlier, maybe a little bit lighter. Uh, we're going to get a couple of different things over the next few days. Uh, but then when we reach December, it's really going to start to kick in, uh, starting with the last week of November, especially with Gotham Award winners, New York Film Critics Circle winners. So award season is amongst us. Think about somebody's 
these questions that we brought up here on this show today, not just from the fans, but also what we discussed earlier, because these are the types of things that we're going to be wondering as the precursors announce and as things continue to move forward. There's a long road still ahead here, but we will be with you every step of the way. Giovanni Lago, there we go. Where can they find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at the Giovanni Lago. Josh Parham? You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at JR Parham. And Cody Derricks. I'm on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Instagram at CodyMonster91. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you all so much for listening, as always, and we will see you all next Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast.